Before we get started with today's show, I wanted to tell you about another great podcast. Swaggoo and Perk, an ESPN podcast led by his namesake hosts Marcus Spears, Swaggoo, and Kendrick Perkins, with new episodes every Tuesday morning. Spears and Perkins will bring listeners the latest NBA and NFL news, as well as a look inside their lives, career journeys, with can't-miss conversations. And during the NBA Finals at Golden State, Perk and Brian Winhurst will be doing special post-game podcasts. That's Swaggoo and Perk. Listen wherever you get your podcasts and also available on ESPN's YouTube channel. Also, ESPN's Emmy Award-winning 30 for 30 documentary film series presents the greatest mixtape ever, the story of how a series of streetball videos set to music in the 90s transformed basketball's place in the culture, defined the lives of the players who starred in them, and changed the game itself forever. Stream now on ESPN+. And listen to the companion 30 for 30 podcast, A Streetball Mixtape, exploring the essence of streetball through a collection of legendary stories. Listen now on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Right Time. My name is Bomani Jones. Thanks for listening wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for watching us on YouTube. Rate us, review us, give us five stars. You only give us four stars. I'm inclined to believe you are a hater. It is that time of week where we have a guest join us. And join us now from ESPN and Meadowlark Media and the author of Ricky. New book dropped yesterday, June 7th. Be sure to go check that out and look at uh, Ricky Henderson's life and career. How Brian? What's going on? What's up? Good morning. Good morning. All right, man, let's go straight into it with this book, because I realize we have a generation of youngsters who probably, A, beyond not even having any idea about Ricky Henderson, but don't really understand that there was an era where a Ricky Henderson existed and that black players of his inclination existed, right? So what led you to decide this is the book that you wanted to do for this go round? Is this about your 38th book? Well, <laughs> that's about, you know what it is? I think that's a big piece of it. I think a lot of times you're watching the game and you're watching baseball games and you're like, you know, this isn't what you know. And I remember when the last dance was going on in 2020 and everybody was talking. And one of the things that I got from that was that you protect your own time. You remember the time that was yours. And for my generation, this was what baseball was. And you had 25% black players and you stole bases and it was on AstroTurf as well, but you stole bases. You electrified the game. You affected the game instead of just being in the batter's box. There's a lot of reasons for it, Bo. That was one of them. One of the other reasons was is that we are in a decade. We're in a decade going back to Trayvon Martin up to now, whether you're talking about the 2016 election, whether you're talking about Trayvon Ferguson, so much stuff. And I got to say that for me, I was running out of things to say. And I was starting to feel, I don't know if burnout is the right word, but I couldn't hear myself. I couldn't hear what I was saying anymore. And I was like, you know what? I need to go back to a project that's fun. I need to go back and write something that reminds me of one of the reasons why I'm here in the first place. And just as a, as a, as a correction, as a palate cleanse. And in the meantime, I'd been thinking about different projects and I'd been thinking about what the next project was going to be. And I started thinking in terms of baseball, how many guys can actually carry a full biography, not even just in baseball, but across the board. And it's fewer than you think. And 
Then I started thinking, how many guys can you write about baseball-wise that are going to carry a 400-page biography where 85% of it is not going to be swallowed up in steroids? And that combination began taking me back and thinking about Ricky. And really also when you think about it from a Hall of Fame standpoint and all of it, that time period is really underrepresented. And this guy absolutely obliterated the record book. So it was a combination of all of the things. And what really pushed it over the edge was 2014. Um, Hank Aaron and I are doing an event at his 80th birthday party down at the Smithsonian in DC. And he and I are on stage. And when we come off stage, now the Hall of Famers are in the audience. Ricky's wife, Pamela, comes over to me and she says, I, I want you to do for my husband what you did for Henry Aaron. And I was like, I didn't do anything for Hank Aaron. <laughs> Henry don't need my help. But what she was really saying was to, to give him his due. And that we spend time talking about Ricky and do we really talk about the Ricky stories and the third person and all that stuff? Or do we really concentrate on what this guy was? And so the more I looked at it, it was like, yeah, this is the one. So Ricky is like Michael Jordan to me in this regard. A player whom we knew in his day was incredible, right? Like Jordan was Jordan in his day. And Ricky Henderson has a legitimate argument for being the best player of his era. And we knew that at the time. But the analytics actually came with a revision of the way that we look at both of those players. And we found out they were actually even better than we thought they were. 100%. 100%. And that's one of the things, like when you think about story and you think about story arc and how do you get from point A to point B. And when you write books, books are not about ideas. Books are about characters. Books are about story and about anecdote. And I mean, if you want to write books about facts only, then there are plenty of academic research books you can find. This thing to me was looking at him in terms of his total career arc. Here's a guy who really was one of the most disliked players in the game. People did not like Ricky. They didn't like his style. They didn't like how he played. They didn't like his attitude. They didn't like how obsessed he was with money and records and the whole thing. They thought he was selfish. But now by the time we talk about him today, people talk about him like he's this combination of Satchel Paige and, and Yogi Berra. Everyone's got a Ricky story and he's grandfatherly and they love him and they're talking about, they miss him. People miss him. They miss what he brought to the game and that thing that we used to see in the game, personality that we don't have anymore. But your point is the point. What really brought Ricky back was actually the analytics. He was better than we thought he was. He was an even more superior player than the superior player that we were watching back in the 80s and the 90s. And so that combination was even more interesting to me, that the guy who had the most swagger, the guy who had the most personality, was actually rehabilitated by the boring slog of numbers. The numbers made him more accessible to a generation that never saw him play. Well, Charles Barkley is in that same boat, too, right? Where you go back and look at it and we think about so much of the personality of him as being so part of his game. And then the analytics went back and was like, oh, OK, this guy's actually better than we thought. Now, with Ricky, in terms of performance, the thing I always found interesting about him, and I can't think of any other player I've ever heard say what Ricky said, the name of the game is scoring runs. And I am trying to score runs, right? Like we think <laughs> about the contribution that people make in baseball, really what you can do with the bat or how you can turn one swing into two, three runs, whatever it is. But Ricky Henderson was a one-man scoring machine in a sport where we do not think of players as being scoring machines. Well, that's right. And when people talk about Ricky, they talk about Ricky as the greatest base dealer of all time. But the record that Ricky really wanted 
was the all-time runs record, which he did break in 2001, that that was the game. The base stealing was a means to the end. Easier to score from second than from first. Easier to score from third than from second. And so he had the ability to do both. But, wow. I mean, when you start thinking about the way he affected a game, and on top of that, when he first came in the league, the great Ralph Wiley called his style a Ricky run. Walk, steal, steal, score on a fly ball. You didn't even need a hit to get him in. But by the time he was cranking all the way through the 80s, when he started adding power to his game... Then came the Ricky special, leadoff home run. And you look at the number of times. The man hit a leadoff home run 81 times. And there was something like his team's winning percentage when he scored the first run of the game in the first inning was like 70%. And people don't talk about that. I mean, that you, having him on your team doing what he does at his best, you got a 70% chance of winning a game? That's unheard of in baseball. Dude, and the stolen bases, again, when I was younger... Like the St. Louis Cardinals were running the National League when my That's consciousness right. of baseball first arises, right? And you got Vince Coleman still 100 bases three straight years, for example. Stealing bases was always, to me, like the coolest thing about baseball, right? Like when I actually got to play in baseball, that's what I wanted to do. I mean, you're a kid. You just want to run around, right? Run. Right? Mm-hmm. Get another base. That was always the most fun. And, of course, as a kid, they was going to mess it up, right? You just, need to, you just needed to get them to do as many, like have to do stuff as much as possible before they wound up being some error of some sort that would be in your favor. But that is like, like the Ricky Henderson stolen base record is so unbreakable at this point, unless something just colossally broken. different changes and they move defenses out 450 feet in every stadium. That one's never going to be broken. But the aesthetic of the game changed in a way that, I mean, it's kind of hard for a lot of people not to tie it to race, right? I think Ralph Wilder was a person who had looked at this others, just the idea that moving away from stolen bases, even if you could show me numbers that made sense as to why maybe this wasn't worth the risk because outs were so important, but it also made for a much drier game, which is normally in the ways that people view it a less black game. Exactly. A different type of person playing the game. And the two are connected. They're absolutely connected. And people don't want to hear about that. I don't know why they don't, because if you want answers, here are the answers. But absolutely, when you start looking at how the game is played, who plays the game affects how the game is played. And people understand it in basketball. All of a sudden, guys flop in Eurostep. Why? Because you've got flopping Europeans now playing the game. <laughs> and so the game has shifted as to who plays it, how it looks aesthetically on the field. And so the black game is a speed game, which is why people were so amazed by the five-tool player, when you get a Maze or an Aaron, you know, when you get those five-tool guys or a Mantle, all of a sudden it's like, oh, you can run, hit, and throw, and hit for power? That's why those guys were so important. And so when you've got guys who can do this, who can affect the game this way, it's going to attract a certain type of player. And when you take that away, it's going to repel a certain type of player. Why do you think we're saying that the game is boring? The black game is to be athletic. It's to be fast. It's to, it's to use all those different tools. And you start removing that, then what you're really saying is that this is a skill set that we are less interested in. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training, just in time for summer and warmer days. I've been in the gym a little bit trying to get my fitness in check so I can break these skinny allegations I keep getting. Spring is the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering off. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. 
Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your training plan in mind. Personalize your workout. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute core session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance. Peloton classes are designed to help focus on your needs and goals while challenging yourself at every level. Now you can catch up on your favorite NBA games with NBA League Pass while you push yourself to new levels of fitness. Watch your favorite games and win your workouts with NBA League Pass on Peloton and visit OnePeloton.com. Peloton all-access membership and NBA League Pass subscription required. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now, one thing I'm curious about in the narrative of the book is, you know, Ronald Acuna had a story very recently where, you know, he did that thing where these guys go back to the crib and do an interview in their own language and think we ain't got Google Translator. Don't nobody here speak <laughs> Spanish and we ain't going to find out what you told them. But he went down and said, basically, there's a time where he had all the eye black on and Freddie Freeman held him down while they took the eye black off of him. Right. Like just the indoctrination into the culture of what baseball is. For Ricky coming into the majors, what was that process like for him being Ricky Henderson, but being young Ricky Henderson when you're not allowed to be what we think of Ricky Henderson as being? And this is the thing you and I have talked about this on this program fairly often, is that basketball is the sport that does the best job of this. Basketball adapts to the people who play it. Baseball does the worst job of it. You adapt to baseball. And what that really means is you are going to have to adapt to a set of rules and cultures and mores that you inherited before any of you were even allowed to play. Uh, baseball, the culture of baseball is pre-integration. It's a segregated style. It's a white style. So here comes Ricky from North Oakland with his Ricky style, doing his Ricky thing. And Den remember Dennis Eckersley, when I first asked him, he said, the first time I saw Ricky, the first thing I said was, who the is this <laughs> you know i mean it was that different and all of the different things that he added to the game it was strange because this is exactly what the sport has been wrestling with for 50 years it's a tv game now it's not a written word game anymore and ricky did all of the things and the baseball establishment wanted nothing to do with that but you couldn't deny the talent that was the problem with Ricky was that there are other guys you can indoctrinate. You can say, okay, this is how we do things. And, and you learn how to deal if you want to stick around. But Ricky was so good. He forced himself on you. No one ever did what he did. And no one since has done what he did. The guy stole a hundred bases in his first full season. <laughs> and that was the interesting thing to me when it's like, okay, here are the things that I want to write about. And there was something else that Ricky did when you talk about culture. You got to remember that when Ricky came up in 1979, free agency is less than five years old. It's only in its fourth full season. So the idea that there was big money out there is relatively new. And the idea that you can say out loud, here's what I'm worth. I want my money. And people absolutely tied that to, to race and to him being a selfish black player and the whole thing. But 
what is culture anyway but a set of rules that you're inheriting? And Ricky broke all those rules. Ricky's like, no, this is not how I do things. And, and that, to me, made him even more fascinating because to the younger players and the younger fans, they loved it. To the old guard, they wanted nothing to do with him. Not just because he was from Oakland, right? But I always describe Oakland as a city as the island of misfit toys, right? Like a guy like <laughs> Ricky Henderson fits in playing for any of the Oakland franchises. When yep. you think about them historically, right? It's always one or two of these that happen to be there. <laughs> and with him with the A's is interesting because he gets there not long after the dynasty is basically ended, right? Like they start the 1970s, have three straight World Series with Reggie Jackson and Catfish Hunter and all of those dudes. He also gets a little bit of that Billy Martin run, as I recall. And I just am trying to imagine Ricky Henderson and Billy Martin. Well, and that's the beauty of it, right? So, yeah, the dynasty's dead. They lose 100 games and Ricky's coming up. And then they bring in Billy. And where's Billy from? Berkeley. Ricky and Billy grew up 30 years apart, but five blocks from each other. Really, they weren't far away from each other. And so... Billy felt like he understood Ricky. And Ralph Wiley had a great line for it. He said, you know, Billy never had a problem with the colors. <laughs> I love <laughs> Wiley. And he talked about them as being close with them the way that people do when they try to convince you they're not racist. But Billy and Ricky had a bond. And Billy was really the reason why Billy Martin was Ricky's favorite manager through Tony La Russa and the rest of them was because Billy understood how to play this game. And he looked at Ricky and was like, you're going to be my spear of lightning. You're the, you, you are going to incorporate how I want this game played. And everybody else, whether it was the writers, teammates, future managers, they kept trying to break this guy. They kept trying to be like, no, 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 we want you to play this way. And Billy was the only one who saw that genius. And that's why they had this relationship that really was. Now, now a lot of the brothers on the team would be like, well, no, 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 no. The real story is that. Billy knew better than anybody else that he needed Ricky. Ricky didn't need Billy. I'm not sure I agree 100% because Ricky did need somebody in the game who did say, go do your thing. You could make the argument that Billy Martin needed Reggie Jackson, but you see how that went. <laughs> also, Exactly. That's a great point. As I hear that, the interesting part is I think is, so what was so different about Ricky versus Reggie Jackson? I guess the difference is as much as they only made one Ricky Henderson, they really only made one Reggie Jackson. Well, and the difference was, was that Reggie is hardcore about reminding you about his intelligence. Ricky's a player. Reggie's a leader. Reggie wants you to know he's the boss. Ricky wants you to know he was the best player, but Ricky didn't want to have to be the boss. You know, Ricky was isolated. Ricky was a singular guy. He wasn't the one out there telling everybody, you know, doing all the interviews and doing. And that was the thing when he came to New York, everybody thought they were getting another Reggie, a second Reggie, and they weren't. They were getting a really sort of singular, you know, guy who was over to himself until the game started. There's no possible way in any universe that Reggie and Billy Martin were going to get along. <laughs> I mean, there's a reason why a car only has one steering wheel. <laughs> I tell you this, though, you mentioned that New York uh, tie for Ricky. And as somebody who didn't get to watch it so much with his own eyes, I just need somebody to explain to me how a team that the top four of the order was it Ricky Anderson, Willie Randolph, Don Mattingly, and uh, Dave Winfield? And then Don Baylor hitting fifth. And they didn't win a damn thing? Not only did they not win a damn thing, but Ricky was there four and a half years before he gets traded to Oakland in June of 89. That team did not have a share of first place in September any of those years. Wow. And one of the things that people have always said, the Yankees won the most games in the 80s and didn't win the whole thing. But here is the thing that nobody talks about. 
They never talk about collusion. They never talk about the fact that George Steinbrenner and those guys were out there. They were still the richest team and did not try to improve. They did a couple of things in trades, but they did not go out in the free agent market. And for the Yankees to not go out and improve with that team, that is the most underrepresented piece of that story. The other piece of it is, is that because of Joe Torre and Derek Jeter and Bernie Williams in the new dynasty, George Steinbrenner got rehabilitated before he died. That's the real George Steinbrenner, the George Steinbrenner of the 1980s. And that George Steinbrenner so completely disrupted that team. And that to the point where I was talking to the great Claire Smith about this, and she was saying that the word around the league was that all you had to do was catch the Yankees in one bad stretch, lose a series they should have won, lose three in a row, whatever. And George was going to be so disruptive that they were going to beat themselves. And that's precisely what happened. And you notice you get George out of there and they rebuild the team and suddenly they win World Series again. But that team was loaded. You got Ricky Mattingly. I mean, think about Ricky's 1985. Ricky misses the first couple weeks of the season. He scores 146 runs in 143 games. I mean, you got Mattingly hitting 340. I mean, Who won the MVP. And Winfield the year before. Winfield and Mattingly were neck and neck and for the batting title. And so they were absolutely loaded, but people do not talk nearly enough about it. And it's one of the things that I wanted to get across in the book was that Yankee period was just so disrupted by Billy Martin's alcoholism and George Steinbrenner and his just volatility. And if that team had just been allowed to play and that the guys weren't undermining them by refusing to sign free agents, different story. Another interesting thing that we would say that Ricky Henderson and Billy Martin had in common was, and you have to go look this up, it is staggering. Billy Martin is probably the best manager of either of our lifetimes. What's the longest he had a job? Three years? Billy burns out. Exactly. Right, but nobody's ever burned out faster. Getting fired after winning divisions. Getting fired in 78 and the team wins the World Series. Yes. Yes. It would always be something. But Ricky also wound up in this place. Nobody loved what he brought quite enough to keep him, but maybe enough to bring him back, which is the other part of the Billy Martin story is you can get tired of it, but then you just decide you're going to bring him back. That's exactly what Oakland did, right? Well, that's right. Got Ricky Henderson back in enough time that one of the players in the first trade came back in the second trade. (laughs) It is true. It is true. And that is what's what's crazy about it. Like Tony Phillips, for example, he played with Ricky in 82 and then played with Ricky again in 89. It was a recycling. And you're right. I mean, Ricky played with the A's four times. And (laughs) I think what has been fascinating to me about this story is there are so many things that happen today that we take for granted that Ricky really sort of invented. Ricky and the A's sort of invented. Like back then, you didn't trade Hall of Fame players at the deadline. You didn't get rid of those guys. And now, you know, now... It was, okay, we'll just trade Ricky and we'll get him back next year if he wants to come back. The entire culture of getting rid of a top Hall of Fame level player to have them bring you to a pennant, that never happened before, you know, before Ricky got traded, before Ricky got traded to, um, you know, to Oakland, to trade it back. And it's just like the money underneath all of this. One of the things that you do when you work on a book project, at least for me, like my thought process has always been that you're trying to understand the time. And this time period is really the third wave of the sports century in the United States. The first era is the immigration era. The second era is the integration era. And the third era is the money. The third era is the economic era. And how much the undercurrent of money affected everything. 
And one of the biggest things it affected was the Hall of Fame type of player doesn't stay very long anymore. And so now Ricky is on one-year deals and two-year deals. And so now you're always a lame duck. Now you're always susceptible to be moved. But the other piece of it, to your point about Billy burning out and, and Ricky being in, along those same lines, is Ricky constantly wanted his money. But the thing that Ricky did, Ricky always chose security over the cash, but wanted the cash too. <laughs> so the minute Ricky signs a long-term deal, you know the minute you sign a long-term deal, somebody's going to pass you in the free agent market the next year. And so now Ricky's mad about getting his money. And so now for the next, you know, half of his career, the second half of his career, he's essentially itinerant. Played for nine teams, just team to team to team. And, and Bob Bryan wrote a column about how, well, you know, one day, just imagine how much better Ricky would have been if he actually chose to want to play. And I remember telling Ricky about this and Ricky was like, how the f are you going to steal 1,400 bases and not want to play? <laughs> so to Bob's point... If Ricky had a different personality, would he have played for nine teams? No, if he had been nicer to the media. No, if he had been, you know, maybe a little less self-involved. But better? He would have never been better. He would have been more acceptable. He might have been more accepted. He might not have been moved as many times. But better? This dude averaged 130 games a year and got 3,000 hits. <laughs> Let me see if I can name the nine. Oh, of course you can. It's nine. It's still a pretty big number. Okay. <laughs> Oakland. Yep. Both Los Angeleses. Yep. Seattle. Yep. Boston. You. Yep. Both New Yorks. Yep. San Diego. Yep. Toronto. Bang. There we go. That's why he's a trivia champ. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, that Dodgers one was like, I think, but I'm I was surprised not you sure. got the Red Sox. That was the one. Oh, no, no, no. The idea of Ricky Henderson playing for the Red Sox is unforgettable. It, like, it didn't happen for very long, but that was one of those where I was like, why couldn't this happen in 1985? Oh, exactly. You know what's crazy about that, though? Like you were talking about the errors. This is, you talk about stuff that'll never happen. And what Ricky did is never going to be broken. His records won't be broken again. I mean, they'll never be broken. 3,000 hits, 2,000 runs, 2,000 walks, and 1,000 stolen bases? Never going to happen. But here's something that's really never going to happen. Ricky played from 1979 to 2003. He joins the Boston Red Sox after the 2001 season. From 1979, his rookie year, to the end of the 2001 season, before he joined the Red Sox, he'd stolen more bases than the Red Sox. <laughs> he outstole a whole team, an entire franchise. Let me tell you something, too. If Ricky Henderson had played for the Boston Red Sox from like 85 to 89, they might not have ever lost a game. If you sure. had Ricky Henderson batting lead off with Wade Boggs hitting 380 in the two hole, <laughs> they may have never lost a game. And by the way, unlike the Yankees, they could pitch. They had Roger Clemens. So, I mean, it's true, but that's, but here's the other thing, right? We're talking about collusion. We're talking about race. We're talking about all these different things that make people uncomfortable, but they are the business and they do affect the winning. At that time, the Boston Red Sox had never signed a black free agent. The Red Sox did not sign a black free agent until 1992. Who was that? It was two guys, Andre Dawson and Billy Hatcher. One of them was finished and the other one was simply Billy Hatcher. <laughs> <laughs> played on the World Series team, played on a couple of division champions. Eat Oakland. Mm -hmm. Billy Hatcher. Billy Hatcher. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's the thing. It's like when you start looking at all of these things, like I was saying, 
if you come into this book thinking that you're going to get 300 pages of Ricky third person minstrel stories, you've come to the wrong place. There's a lot of stuff in here that needs to get explored. On the other hand, this character as a character was so hilarious that there's that fine line of the stories that are just too ridiculous to believe. They're not really possible, but they are possible. But also, Ricky was very much aware of the fact that there was that fine line between laughing with me and laughing at me. And the black players in the game made it very, very clear. They're like, a lot of that stuff, total exaggeration at Ricky's expense. But also a lot of those stories are true. Yeah, I was about to say, like, I, I totally get you on, like, not wanting to lead in too hard on the Ricky third person. I guess I always found it to be delightful rather than a reason to mock him. So, I'm, I'm, like, where the line true. is. Mm -hmm. Like, the best line ever is after the story had gotten out, Sports Illustrated, I remember, had put it in there. The John Olerud story where yeah. one day Ricky Henderson walks up with John Olerud and says, <laughs> you wear your batting helmet on the field. He says, yeah. He's like, yeah, I used to play with a dude in Toronto who did that. And John Olerud <laughs> says... Yes, it's me. And then in a later Sports Illustrated story, they ask Olerud about it, and he says, no, that was not true. But it could have been true. <laughs> but it could have been true. Which, got I feel like sums up this whole thing. Absolutely. And not only could it have been true, but then Ricky started telling people it was true. Because <laughs> I talked to Olerud about this. And you know who's actually the ringleader, not to give spoiler alerts, but you know who the ringleader of this whole story is? One of my all-time favorite players to cover who had the driest, most hilarious sense of humor. He was always the, the mischievous one. Cool Breeze himself, Robin Ventura. Ah. He's the one. Ricky and Olerud were teammates on the 99 Mets. They were teammates earlier on the 93 Blue Jays. Olerud leaves to go to Seattle in 2000. Ricky is still with the Mets, and they release him. And so once he gets released, Lou Pinella picks him up, and now he signs with Seattle. When the news goes across the ticker, Robin Ventura is in the trainer's room getting his ankles taped. And he says, wouldn't that be hilarious if when Ricky sees Olerud in the clubhouse, he says, hey, I used to play with a guy who wore his helmet on the field too. <laughs> and so he and the team trainer and Todd Zeal go out into the clubhouse and repeat that story just loud enough that other people in the clubhouse heard it and it started to get repeated and it became fact. It never happened. However, when Olerud goes to Boston, Ricky had already been there, and Ricky told the Red Sox players that the story was true. <laughs> Simply because, and Olerud was like, he must have liked the story so much, he just figured, hey, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. <laughs> now, another character in this book is Oakland, as Ricky is from Oakland. And Oakland, it's a great migration story, as much as anything else. Like, you know, I've talked on this podcast and other places about The Warmth of Other Sons by Isabel Wilkerson many times. I recommend you go check it out because this is one of the most important periods in American history that produced a lot of the people who were the progeny of the Great Migration did some of the most important things that anybody in this country has done over the course of the last 60, 70 years. And Ricky Henderson is at the top of that list. And he's in a part of town where the concentration of incredible talent within a eight block radius Absolutely mind-blowing. What's really funny, full disclosure, I purposely did not read The Warmth of Other Suns. For that reason, I did not want to feel like I was duplicating anything. So I never read the book. However, the one thing that always struck me about the Great Migration story is that we are now willing to tell it, and we talk about it, and we understand, like if you read Nicholas Lehman's The Promised Land, and so many different stories, we never talk about it in terms of sports. People talk about, oh, well, you know, like they'll talk about Mobile and they'll be like, oh, man, how do you get 
Hank Aaron and Double Duty Radcliffe and Satchel Paige and Willie McCovey all in the same spot, and Henry used to say, oh, something in the water. And then people would look over at Oakland and go, man, how do you get Ricky and Bill Russell and Veda Pinson and Kurt Flood and all in dudes, all in the same place? And they would just talk about how special Oakland was. But then you go back and look, they're all from the same place. Bill Russell's from Monroe, Louisiana, same town as Huey Newton. They both end up in West Oakland, living two blocks from each other. Ricky and Lloyd Mosby and Paul Silas, they're all from Arkansas. They end up over in the same neighborhood. You got Frank Robinson, Joe Morgan, Kurt Flood, all from Texas, and Bobby Seale from Beaumont. They all end up in Oakland. And the reason why they end up in West Oakland is because Oakland had these racial covenants. It was the only place they allowed you to live. So you think about what the migration did. It put all that talent in one place in one high school. It's incredible. The story doesn't exist anymore because now, you know, black people can live wherever they want in Oakland. But back then, if you were coming up from the South, you were only going to live in West Oakland. It was where the army base was. It was where the railroad was, where Union Pacific was. So that's how, you know, a lot of the porters got their jobs there. And so that one school had benefited from the migration in a way that maybe no high school in history has. And it's not fair, and it'll never be fair to say that those who did not leave the South in that time period lacked anything, right? Everybody's mm -hmm. got all kinds of reasons why they do things. But it is absolutely fair to say that there's a selection bias at play in the sense that the go-getters were going to be more likely to go get, right? The go get. True. I mean, when you think about what it takes to be like, I'm going to pack all my stuff and leave this place. Great story in The Warmth of Other Sons is a dude who was a, a doctor in Atlanta was making the move out to California. And what they said, though, the real difficulty on the drive was Texas because you had to get all the way across Texas. And when you especially once you start getting like west of Dallas, San Antonio, you know, any of those mm -hmm. places where there are no black people, you got nowhere to stay. Right. Yep. That was what the test was. And said the dude pushed all the way through that to get across. And then at one point he gets to Arizona and he can't find anybody to let him stay somewhere. And he comes to one place and the dude is like, look, we're from Illinois. We don't do things like they do things. But if we let you stay here, they're going to put us out of business. Right. But he said, I heard you say that you go into California and uh, I just want to let you know we went to USC and uh, it ain't what you think it is, homeboy. Mm -hmm. Right. Like you are stepping into something monstrous once you get there. So you had these people who had to do all of these things literally just to get there at all. Like even if they wanted to get there for a week, they would have had to go through and do all of those things. Then when they get there, find out it's not exactly what they expected it to be. But now the only option is to go get it. And you got a whole generation that comes from that. The ultimate can't go back all stars. And that's the reason why I think Oakland is so special. That's why Oakland is the place that it is, because there was no going back. So you had to create this thing. You had to fight for it. There's a reason why Kurt Flood is who Kurt Flood was. There's a reason why the Black Panthers started in Oakland and Berkeley and that, you know, by those dudes who had already made that journey. And let's not forget, you go read Huey Newton's autobiography, Revolutionary Suicide. You know, you go read Bobby Seale's books. You read what Bill Russell had to say about coming from Monroe. And when you get to Oakland, you do have to fight for what's yours because that place didn't want you either. So now what are you going to do? And the thing about why the Oakland story is so important is just like L.A., but Oakland in particular, there's literally nowhere else to go. You're in California on the coast. You can't go further west. Where else are you going to go? You got to make it here. Because if you go backwards, you already know what's back there. That's not going to work. So when you go look 
And now, you know, the people that you know from, oh, there's a certain Oakland style. There's a certain Oakland defiance. There's a certain Oakland toughness that comes from the migration, that comes from where those people came from and what they went through. And there's a reason why you see them dudes on the field. Well, you know, like I remember when I was covering, you know, high schools in Oakland, where does this confidence come from? Where do these dudes, they truly believe they belong wherever they are. And the other thing I think that's important to note when you talk about that is Oakland had a black baseball culture, you know? Also, mm-hmm. When people start talking about black participation in baseball, I think the part that doesn't get discussed enough is actually the migration. Like Kirby Puckett is a baseball player out of Chicago. Not to say that none came out of Chicago, but it's a little harder to find open spaces to play baseball on in Chicago than it is in Mobile, for example, mm-hmm. right? Like as the population mm-hmm. became more urbanized and as the South began to put more of an emphasis on football, which had a lot to do with the money that they could now make off of these dudes playing football. It changes the dynamics a lot about who plays what. But Oakland, just as L.A. was in that time period, because them dudes is country, man. Like you say, Ricky came from Arkansas. Everything makes sense after you say that. But, them, you know, them dudes was for real deal country dudes. And they got to Oakland and there was a for real culture of black baseball that came out of there. Like Jimmy Rollins is the recent example of somebody that comes out of that. That's right. And Ricky was talking about when he first got there, he was stunned how refined California was. He's a country dude from Pine Bluff. Oh, okay. Explains even more. Right. And he was like, he felt like he was around the Ivy League talking to the people because he just, it just took so much longer. Now, the only thing in the great equalizer for him was put me on a ball field and now I'm equal. But off of the field, completely felt out of place. That's interesting. I look at Oakland as a, what, however you do it, old boy. Right. Well, his accent was so huge, right? He had that big Arkansas. And, and that's the thing, is that by the time Ricky gets there, a lot of the kids, that second wave generation, they were born in Oakland. They weren't born down south. Whereas Bill Russell's group, they were all born in tech. You know, they were born down south. Bill Russell was born in Louisiana. Joe Morgan was born in Texas. Flood, Texas. Frank Robbins in Texas. But the next wave... That wave, they were Californians. They were native Californians. And they looked at the new kids coming up because that's the end of the migration. Ricky gets to Oakland in 68, 69. That's when his family starts moving up there. The migration effectively is over in 1970. So he's the last wave of the great migration. All of that as it comes together is so wild when you really think about like how it redistributed so much around the map and like the idea of the talent dispersion. Because one thing about California is California feel like it got a lot more black people than it does. Well, especially, and that's migration right there. Because you look at San Francisco, it's not the same. Mm-mm. The big pockets of black people in California are really in like a couple of places. L.A., Oakland. Yeah. And they're dope. Like that mm-hmm. was a buddy of mine who's you know from around L.A. We talked about this many years ago. He was just like, yo, black people in L.A. are so dope. But, it's, but the explanation, when you really... When you stopped and realized how few of them there actually were, oh, okay, I see what you're saying. Like when you think That's about right. how much came out of Black Los Angeles and you just realize it wasn't even really that many people because they did not want us to show up. They were not, give us your tired, your poor, your Jerry curled <laughs> up. They was not here for that. No, it's true. And that's why you see that Oakland thing. Like that's the, and, and, and that's what's wild about it. When you look at that generation, Ricky's little league team had Dave Stewart, Lloyd Mosby, Gary Pettis, Ricky, all on the same team. As 11-year-olds, they're all in the big leagues for major league players, right? I mean, the only I remember one time talking to Jason Giambi about this, and he was telling me that one of his little league teams had him, Jeremy, his little brother, 
Nomar and Sean Green. It's pretty damn good. All of them made the big leagues. But not like this. Right. Not like this. I mean, oh, like the Tampa boys, same thing. When you had Chef and Gooden and all them dudes at the same time playing, Wade Boggs and those guys were all around the same. But this, and these dudes all lived within a few blocks of each other, it's wild. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before I let you go, you being our local Boston person, <laughs> why your boys can't do it two games in a row, man? Uh, they are the Boston Celtics. Because, yeah, let me see. Let's put it this way. They also don't lose two games in a row either. Fair. That's what's kind of wild about it. They are so cocky. They really do have this thing where once they get you, they're like, okay, we got this. No, you don't got this. <laughs> you don't quite got this. You know, you, 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 you bust your ass to get a split in Miami. You come home, you're down by 30 in the second quarter of game three. <laughs> Made that series way more difficult than it needs to be. You got an elimination game at home in game six. And Tatum and Brown combined for two shots in game six in the fourth quarter in an elimination game to go to the finals at home. You do what you did in game one against the Warriors. And I'm not going to say that the Celtics didn't come to play in game two. But you had to expect a response. They came to play at first. At and first. then halftime came. I don't know what and he may be doing came. at halftime. I don't know what he be telling them cats. That's true. And I'm looking at them and I'm going, okay, this is a championship level team. These Warriors. Right? And like we all making fun of Michael during the last dance. I took that personal. Right? We make memes out of him because Michael's so intense. But that's what it takes. You don't let, you cannot let down. You cannot let up at all in this until the job is done and you can see it when you watch the celtics watch the celtics it's easy to tell what kind of celtic team is going to show up are they messing around going one-on-one -on -one, turning the ball over or are they passing the ball when they pass the ball you can't beat them they're the best team in the nba when they actually play but they have so many lulls i mean the series is gonna is gonna come down to what it always comes down to with evenly matched teams how many games should you have won against how many games you actually won? And if you're the Warriors, you might be thinking, hey, this lands on our doorstep because we should have had game one. I don't think the Celtics should have won game two. They didn't give themselves as much of a chance. We will see. They're only five and four at home in the postseason. This is the worst home team of any Celtic championship team ever. However, they're the best road team of any Celtic championship level team ever. So they're just weird, man. They can go beat you by 30. They be stressing you out, don't they? <laughs> it's true. I'm like, finish this. <laughs> but you know what? It is true. I mean, hey, man, sometimes you just got to admit what's in your blood. You know, I mean, I got Jojo White and Don Chaney and Robert Parrish. And this is where you grow up, man. It's where you from. What you going to do? Yeah, no, on a different day, we going to have a conversation about the complexities of being you <laughs> and from that <laughs> city and having teams. And, and having teams know. and rooting for them and, and bleeding for that team. And then having 
having them white dudes take it all away every single time going i'm trying to root for y'all but y'all are making this real how come it can't just be all of us rooting for... Mm-mm. they remind you who that team belongs to hey man tell me this how many uh stanley cups have the bruins won in some totals like six right in total yeah but they've won three since 1970 yeah 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 but, but you know mm-hmm. six right when the league only had six teams they only managed to win three championships in that run okay how many championships the celtics got 17 17 who is the primary tenant of that arena <laughs> the tenant or the owner the pride yeah if i say the outlet is when you go into that new garden it's black and gold it ain't green yeah, and white it's the bruins they own it's it. the bruins building that's right well the celtics have been renting that building for years and right. rick grousebeck when they bought the team one of their goals was to try to buy the garden so, so they could finally have an arena that belonged to them. That's Jeremy Jacobs building. Yep. But the point simply being 17, it's, it's an extension of the great Tommy Hodson quote, 11 championships. They named a tunnel after Ted Williams. <laughs> and it's true. And everybody knows it and nobody wants to admit it, but there's no possible way. You can do what that franchise did in any other place and still be like third on the pecking order. With another team that never won. With another team that, I mean, that city is baseball, hockey, and then whatever. Now it's Patriots country, but growing up, you weren't getting any burn if you were Celtics. Yo, real talk, before 2000, you'll call it one with the Patriots start, y'all really was a city of losers if it wasn't for the Celtics. No question. Absolutely. That's not even controversial. I mean, think about it. I mean, nobody else had one. The Bruins hadn't won since, what, they won in 70 and 72. The Red Sox hadn't won since 1918. The Patriots hadn't won, period. They didn't win in the AFL. They didn't win in the NFL. And when they did get there, they got their doors blown off by the Bears and then pretty much got their doors blown off in the second half by the Packers. So that's why the Celtics fans were like, hey, we're the only ones keeping y'all alive. We're keeping you afloat here. And then in the 2000s, everything shifted. But, you know, once again, that's why I keep saying you protect your own time. Depending on which time period you enter this thing, that's what you know. Yeah, man. That is Howard Bryant. Check out his new book on Ricky Henderson. It is called Ricky. You can find (laughs) it in bookstores right now. Be sure to check it out. I appreciate you for doing the book because we've talked about this a lot as you've gone through the process. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm here for this. (laughs) This I am ready for. Thank goodness that Ricky was actually helpful for a little while, for a minute. <laughs> just a little while, uh. mm, Just a little bit. And then Ricky found out that it was a real book and was like, where's my money? <laughs> <laughs> and that was the last time I spoke to Ricky. And then Ricky did the worst thing you could possibly do to an author. Not only did Ricky choose not to talk anymore, but Ricky called all his people. There's a dude out there writing a book. Do not talk to him. Shut it, it might as all well. Ricky down. ain't going to read it. <laughs> I want to be clear. I'm not saying he can't read it. Well, you know what? You know what's funny about that? Last thing, put a, the asterisk on this story, the little PS on this story. When Ricky's autobiography came out off base back in 91, he didn't read that. But he did listen to the audiobook. And one of the reasons he loved the audiobook was because it was voiced by a young actor named Andre Brower, <laughs> who was looking for work. And took this audio gig reading Ricky Henderson's book. And when Ricky read it, listened to it, he was like, I like that dude. I like that dude. I think he got a future. He was right. And he was right. He was right. 
But Howard, I appreciate you, man. And ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us here on The Right Time. We do this three times a week. Gabe Bassane and Adi Khan handling things behind the scenes. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, Remember, The Right Time Book Club, the first episode is June 13th. That is Monday. The book is King of the World by David Remnick, a biography of Muhammad Ali. And joining us for our first installment is Howard Bryant. So, you know, you love this. We get a little bit more of that. Be sure to come check it out. Remember, follow the right time. And thanks for watching us on YouTube. Rate us, review us, give us five stars. You only give us four stars. I'm inclined to believe you are a hater. And we'll talk to you guys in a couple of days. Take it easy. Thanks for checking out the right time with Bomani Jones podcast. You can listen or follow on the ESPN app or wherever you listen to podcasts. The right time with Bomani Jones.